The Jogcast, measured across the spectrum, with Claire Breverton, Indy Leclerc, Ian Morrison, Josephine Peters, Mark Perver, Hannah Stacey, and Charlie Walker. The Jogcast, July 2015 edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jogcast. I'm Charlie, joining me in the studio are Hannah and Josie. Hello. Hello. In the show this time, the ghost of Mark Pervert interviews Dr. Sarah Crowther about cosmochemistry, and Ian Morrison and Claire Breverton take a look at what's happening in the July night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Indy with this month's news. This month in the news, getting closer to Pluto, primordial stars, and rocket mishap. Since its discovery in 1930, the celestial body we know as Pluto has always been shrouded in mystery. Its existence had been predicted through its effect on Uranus's orbit, and in the early 20th century, astronomer Percival Lowell embarked on a search for what he called Planet X. When it was finally discovered, the news made headlines around the world, and it was named after the ancient Greek god of the underworld. After it was found, and declared as the ninth planet in the solar system, astronomers slowly began to realise that Pluto was quite different to the eight previous planets. It orbits the Sun in an eccentric, inclined path, at an average distance of roughly 39 AU. Its distance from the Sun varies by quite a bit during its orbit, though. At its nearest, 30 AU, Pluto can be closer to the Sun than Neptune. Furthermore, its mass, at first thought to be similar to Earth's mass, was slowly revised downwards over time. The discovery of Pluto's moon Charon in 1992 enabled an accurate measurement. This so-called planet was but 0.2% as massive as the Earth. This was nowhere near enough to explain the perturbations in the orbit of Uranus that had originally motivated the search for Planet X. The subsequent discovery of numerous further trans-Neptunian objects in the Kuiper belt orbiting the Sun was the final nail in Pluto's status as a planet. Eris, discovered in 2005, was a new object which was found to be significantly larger than Pluto. The following year, the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, formally defined the term planet, and this definition excluded Pluto, which was reclassified as a dwarf planet. Much ink was spilled over this decision, but it still stands today. Due to its great distance from us, no spacecraft had ever attempted to visit Pluto and the other trans-Neptunian objects, and so unlike other planets, we don't have any good images of what Pluto looks like. This is about to change, though, as NASA's New Horizons probe is about to perform a very close flyby of the dwarf planet. Launched in 2006, the craft has taken nine years to travel nearly five billion kilometres, aiming to explore the region past Neptune, containing dwarf planets, which is known as the Kuiper Belt. On July the 14th, the probe is set to zoom by at a distance of merely 12,500 kilometres, giving us our best ever images of the planet. The craft has already been sending back images as it gets closer and closer, using its two onboard cameras, Lori and Ralph. It also has instruments for detecting any potential atmosphere Pluto might have, making use of UV, radio and thermal emission. As of the 2nd of July, New Horizons was around 14 million kilometres from Pluto, and it sent back intriguing colour images showing large spots on the surface of the dwarf planet along the equator. These latest images are in true colour, showing that Pluto has a slight reddish tinge to it. The craft has also detected frozen methane on the dwarf planet's surface. The signals from New Horizons currently take four and a half hours to transmit back to Earth, and the craft effected a final burn on the 1st of July, altering its trajectory for the flyby on the 14th. It will be going much too fast to enter orbit around Pluto, but its cameras will have plenty of time to snap away at the surface, 
potentially revealing details less than 100 meters wide. The mission will thus provide a treasure trove of data for planetary scientists and will bring Pluto out of its icy isolation. Planet X will be unknown no more. In other news, astronomers have discovered so-called primordial stars in a distant galaxy. As Carl Sagan famously said, we are made of star stuff. What he meant by that is that all of the elements that make up a human were synthesized in stars from the most basic element, hydrogen. As stars evolve, they produce heavier and heavier elements, with various fusion processes going all the way from hydrogen up to iron, and nuclear fission and radioactive decay giving us the elements that are heavier than that. Pretty much every star that we see nowadays contains several metals. Astronomers call everything heavier than hydrogen or helium a metal, as the universe is old enough to have synthesized plenty of these elements by now. Theoretically, the very first stars would have been made purely of hydrogen and helium with traces of lithium, as these are the only elements that can form without stellar nucleosynthesis just after the Big Bang. However, these stars would not have lived very long and would have seeded the universe with heavier elements, like carbon and oxygen, when they reached the end of their lives and explode. Astronomers now think that they have found some still extant examples of these stars, observing a very distant 800-million-year-old galaxy, which is only about 6% of the age of the universe, using the Subaru telescope on Mauna Kea. They found light from the Cosmos Redshift Galaxy, or CR7 for short, a reference to the famous Portuguese footballer, that was indicative of the presence of ionized helium. Now, this would mean that the source was hot enough to also ionize any carbon or oxygen present, but they didn't find any spectral lines that would indicate these were there. So this means that the light was coming from first-generation stars, also known as Population 3 stars. The finding is particularly interesting and somewhat difficult to explain because the galaxy hosting these Population 3 stars also hosts a second generation of stars containing heavier elements, one explanation that the astronomers have come up with is that these stars were late bloomers. They could have formed from a cloud of pristine hydrogen and helium that was prevented from collapsing by the heat of other primordial stars and was only sufficiently cool to coalesce into stars much later than the others. This observation also suggests that more primordial stars could be found in other galaxies. The search is on. Finally, the commercial spaceflight company SpaceX, owned and run by billionaire Elon Musk, suffered a setback on the 28th of June as its Falcon 9 rocket, carrying a Dragon capsule full of supplies for the ISS, disintegrated mid-flight. This is the third failure of a resupply vehicle in the past calendar year, with an Antares rocket crashing seconds after launch last October, and a Russian Progress 59 cargo spacecraft crashing in April. While rocket science is never risk-free, this has cast a bit of a shadow on the public perception of the viability of regular space travel. SpaceX's rocket is the basis of its planned manned vehicle which will carry astronauts to the ISS under its contract with NASA. As a new era of manned spaceflight is dawning, with the ultimate goal a trip to Mars in the 2030s, commercial space-going companies are going to under more scrutiny than ever before. Here's hoping that they can rise to the challenge and make spaceflight accessible to all. Thanks for that, Indy. Now, Mark interviews Dr. Sarah Crowther about asteroids, comets and cosmochemistry. I'm interviewing Dr. Sarah Crowther from the School of Earth, Atmospheric and Environmental Sciences here at the University of Manchester. Thank you very much for being on the Jogcast. Thank you for having me. Now, we really should have had you on before because you've been working virtually next door to where the Jogcast is all these years, but we haven't. So, can you explain to us how your work, which of course sounds sort of maybe a bit geological, how that actually sort of ties into astronomy? 
Yeah, so I work in the isotope geochemistry and cosmochemistry group and a lot of our work is looking at extraterrestrial samples. So these can be meteorites or samples returned by various missions and we're looking at the chemistry of the material to learn more about the history and formation and evolution of our solar system. And do you think of it as astronomy? Not exactly, no. My background was in chemistry um, and the people in our group, we've got people with backgrounds in chemistry, physics and geology and you need all those uh, different subjects to do this. But we're more lab-based than a lot of astronomy work that's using telescopes and so on. Okay, so you can actually get your hands on the experiment, yes. which is nice. Yes, I've just come from the lab. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And and how do you get your samples that you work on? Because obviously they're not necessarily here on Earth. The meteorites are all here on Earth and they tend to be held by things like NASA or museums. So the Natural History Museum in London have a big collection. And if we want to analyse them, we have to write a proposal saying what we want to do, how much material we'll need, whether we'll be able to send it back, whether we'll destroy it. And this is, so the scientific merit of what we want to do really and then they decide whether to let us have some or not as i said a minute ago some of the other samples are from missions so we've had samples from the apollo missions that went to the moon nasa's genesis mission which collected the solar wind nasa's stardust mission which collected material from a comet the japanese hayabusa mission that collected material from an asteroid so those are collected in space and brought back to earth for analysis Wow, that's fantastic. I mean, even the Apollo missions, you sort of think of them as being quite a long time ago, over 40 years, but there's still analysis going on of, of the stuff they brought back. Then. Yes, there's still a lot of work going on and there's other members of our group looking at those. And with the ones that you just mentioned being brought back by spacecraft, which ones of those have you had the chance to work on and what have you found out about those things? Um, I've done quite a lot of work on the Genesis samples. We're, we've also done a bit of work on the Hayabusa samples and we're working towards doing the Stardust samples. So you have to remind me again which one was which. Now, Genesis said was the solar <laughs> Genesis wind. Genesis the you? solar wind. So. Uh, Stardust was the comet, and Hayabusa the asteroid. And with um, Genesis, just to give all the listeners a bit of an idea, what is the actual material that's collected? What is the solar wind? So it's the hot plasma that's coming off the sun. There's something like a million tons coming off a second, yeah. um, up to temperatures of tens of thousands of degrees. It's mostly hydrogen, because most of the sun's hydrogen, and I think 0.1% of it is all the other elements. And so in the mission, the, the spacecraft had these big collector arrays that were perhaps a metre-ish in diameter, and they were made up of hexagons of very, very pure silicon, sapphire, and so on. And the ions of the plasma are implanted into those um, hexagons of silicon and so on and then when we bring them back to earth we can extract it again that sounds it sounds so tenuous the actual plasma itself i mean you're sort of scooping it up and then i mean i guess you can't just keep it in a jar or, or it gets you? implanted into the material right. so it's about between i think about 40 and 100 nanometers below the surface and, and then when you go about analyzing it how does that work so uh, different people have used different methods, but the work I did, we um, basically hit the surface with a laser, a process called ablation. So we hit the surface with a laser, basically blast the surface material away for the first couple of hundred nanometers or so, so then we're releasing the implanted solar wind. Gosh, that's brilliant. And then this is from someone who knows very little about chemistry. <laughs> You're <laughs> analysing really small amounts of this material, so yes. how 
do the instruments actually gain information about it? So the instruments we use are all mass spectrometers. We have a whole range of different ones. A lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are looking at noble gases, so helium, neon, argon, krypton and xenon. It's not just the hydrogen? No, no, we don't measure the hydrogen in our labs at all. But as I said, the hydrogen's about 99 point something percent, and it's probably about 0.1% that's all the other elements so there is very very little material and you need the most sensitive the most high-tech instruments to be able to measure that so the samples we were analyzing had something of the order of perhaps 10,000 atoms of xenon which was the element I was looking at in them now if you compare that to a, a grain of sand or something that's got billions and billions of atoms in it it's a really small amount and um what uh, results have come out of uh, the, the analysis of the solar wind from Genesis? Well, there's quite a lot of stuff because they've been looking at all the elements. So, as I said, we just looked at one element, xenon, um, but people around the world have been looking at everything, people looking at oxygen, nitrogen, other noble gases, and the plan is to look at pretty much the whole periodic table. So for our work, the reason we were doing it was because the only previous measurements of Xenon in the solar wind had been made from samples of lunar soils and they can be complicated by other contributions. So, for example, you've got spontaneous fission of plutonium and uranium on the moon which produce isotopes of xenon. You've got interactions of cosmic rays with um, barium and rare earth elements which produce isotopes of xenon. And although the people who did that work had done everything they could to make the correct corrections and subtract those components, you couldn't be 100% sure that they got everything absolutely right until we measured directly sampled solar wind without those other complications. Um, Now, it turned out they had got it pretty much spot on and our um, measurements came out pretty much the same as theirs did. And does it help to tell us about the composition of the sun in general? or more about what what kind of elements are being kicked out in the solar wind? A bit of each, I think. There's some parts of the sun that are believed to not really have changed since the solar system first formed, and um, but there are other parts that have. So the solar wind does is the closest we can get to measuring the sun. We can't go and get a sample of the sun and bring it back. It's too hot. Mm-hmm. And the data you get from spacecraft aren't accurate or precise enough because we're, you know, we're talking about fractions of a percent difference between things and the data you get from spacecraft isn't that good. And the, that xenon presumably was present in the sun since it actually formed, since the solar system formed, I would guess. That it yeah, Because I, I know elements produced by fusion, but presumably that would come later in the sun's life if it were to produce such heavy elements. And so I was just wondering... How related is the abundance of xenon in the sun compared to, say, on Earth? Ah, if I wanted a, some xenon here, how would I That's a very interesting question, <laughs> because the um, isotopic composition of xenon in our atmosphere cannot be derived from the composition of the xenon in the sun. Okay. Um, and it, in theory, it should be able to. You should be able to derive it adding other components due to radioactive decay or so on, but you, your starting point should be the composition of the xenon in the sun. And you can't get from that to the composition of our xenon, the xenon in our atmosphere. Um, and this is a bit of pro- a problem that people have been wondering about for a long time, and they ha- hope that the Genesis data might shed some light on it. So perhaps show that there had been an error made in the data from the lunar samples, but 
it hasn't. So we still don't understand how the composition of the xenon in our atmosphere derived. So do we have too much xenon? I mean, um, to be explained by... We've got no. too much of some isotopes and too little of others. Right. Well, that's interesting. So if I were to... Um, I wanted to make a plasma ball and have some pretty <laughs> colours using xenon, would I be able to extract that from the air? Is that how it's normally done on here on Earth? Oh, I don't know. I guess so. Yes, I assume so. I've not thought about that. <laughs> well, going on to the other missions, now you talked about um, Stardust's next collecting uh, dust from a comet. Yes, And that is that something that you've also worked on or people have here at Manchester? Yes, yes. Um, in our lab, we're trying to combine some, the spectrometer in our lab with a technique that's used in a lab in Zurich called closed system step etching to allow us to extract the xenon. So the um, Stardust mission used a material called aerogel to collect the samples from the comet. And this is a a very porous, um, it's a very weird material. If you have a look at pictures of it on the internet or something, it's sort of a bit blue, it's a bit ghosty, it appears very oddly, but it's very porous. So it's absorbed lots of air from our atmosphere. Usually when we're trying to extract the gas from our samples in our spectrometers we heat them with a laser unfortunately when we do this to the aerogel as we increase the power of the laser nothing happens nothing happens nothing happens then it suddenly couples to the laser and all the gas comes out in one go this would mean that we wouldn't be able to um, differentiate between the air from it just sitting around waiting for us to analyze it while it's been on earth and any cometary xenon because it had all come out in one go and there's so much air in there and the cometary contribution would be so small we wouldn't be able to differentiate. So this etching technique is a bit different. Instead of heating it with a laser, we attack it with hydrofluoric acid, a very low uh, amount at low temperature, and it basically dissolves away from the outside in. So you dissolve the aerogel first, and then hopefully um, you can do that with very mild acid conditions and if there's any cometary material in there you'd need much harsher conditions to dissolve that and extract the gas from that and we've done some tests with it using some non-flight aerogel so some aerogel that's identical to that that was flown on the mission but didn't fly on the mission and we can extract the air from it in that way so the next step will be some more tests that way then we'll put in some real samples hopefully so you're also interested in Yourself, you're interested in the amount of xenon or the um, abundances of xenon in the, in the cometary material? Yes. I guess I imagined with a comet, it's just sort of collecting a lot of dust, but I suppose that dust itself covers all sorts of materials. Is it also collecting essentially particles of gas as well? Yes, it could have done. Gas could have got implanted. The, the dust's easier to see because it makes tracks, like carrot-shaped tracks in the aerogel, but there could well be gas in there too. And does the xenon tend to be trapped within something else, or is it sort of in the form of gas? We haven't got that far yet with the the Stardust stuff, Um, but there could be some gas, it could be in the particles. There's a lot to to find out. It's it's, it's very interesting because we we had another interview about um, Philae landing on a a comet, and, and it's always opening up a little bit of a box of surprises sort of from the early solar system. Yes. So it could, I suppose, be different in abundance to the Earth and the Sun, or it could be similar to one or the other. Yes. With the mission to the asteroid... Hayabusa. Hayabusa. Did you say that was one that, that hasn't come back to Earth yet? The first mission has, but the second one hasn't. Hayabusa, the first Hayabusa came back uh, a few years ago. 
The second one, Hayabusa 2, launched, I think, in about December and is not due back for 10, 12 years or so. So it's travelled a, a long way to get yes. these samples. Then. Yeah. How do you collect material from an asteroid? Because it doesn't strike me as something that's streaming off in the way it does from a comet. No, this this was a Japanese mission. I, I don't know the exact details of their collection uh, mechanics, but it basically it touched down briefly on the surface of the asteroid, scooped up some material, and then left again. Right, wow. Actually <laughs> just scooped it up. Well, that, that sounds like easier than sort of collecting it with aerogel or, or what have you. From a, an asteroid, yes. <laughs> and have you been able to analyse any of the samples from the first mission? We had a, a couple of samples, yes. We're always the last people to get these things, though, because we destroy them. We oh, heat them with a laser, melt <laughs> them, and there's nothing left. And because there's so little material available, they want to get as much possible information out of every grain as they can. So it goes. they go to lots of other people doing lots of other techniques before coming to us, and then we zap them and destroy them. <laughs> <laughs> Were you able to find xenon in in the uh, asteroid material yes we did it was a very tiny grain and so only a very tiny amount of gas but we did measure some yes can that be relied on to sort of reflect the abundance or is it that it's so low that you can't be sure if you were lucky to find a grain or maybe unlucky not to find two or well yes it was such a small particle the the abundance was roughly what we spe- expected within a, a factor of 10 i can't remember the numbers but it was such a small grain um that that you know it, it it could be that the gas is distributed evenly everywhere, but it could be that some grains have a higher concentration than others. Um, but we did we definitely saw some. Mm-hmm. And is it also something of a relic of the early solar system, in the, yes. in the way that the comets are? Yes. So um, and there's theories that the asteroids were material that should have formed a planet but didn't because it was disrupted by Jupiter's gravity. Um, but the, a lot of the asteroids haven't changed much since they first formed. Some of them have, some of them have differentiated, got an iron core and a rocky outer layer like on Earth, um, but some of them haven't. Some of them really resemble the material that they first formed from. And it was one of those types of comets, sorry, asteroids that they went to that hasn't changed much, called a chondrite. So it, it does resemble the material that the solar system first formed from. Brilliant. And when you analyse the meteorites that have landed on Earth, are you able to extract materials like xenon from them? Or, oh, yes. Yeah, and so we they, can... they haven't been sort of completely kind of spoiled by their journey through the atmosphere and the high No, no, no. They, it's really only the outer few millimetres, if that, that gets hot as they come through the atmosphere. Um, and you can, if you see the outside of one, it's got the fusion crust, the burnt outside on it. But that's, I'd say, a millimetre at the most thick and the rest of the material underneath is hasn't got hot. And the abundances of xenon in those meteorites, does that depend where they originally came from? Yes, it can do. The, um, the isotopic composition of xenon in many meteorites is similar. The abundances and other contributions from radioactive decay and so on can vary. So one of the isotopes of iodine, iodine-129, decays to produce xenon-129. Now, we can. Um, there's only one stable isotope of iodine, that's 127. We can irradiate our samples in a neutron uh, reactor before we analyse them, and that converts that iodine-127 into xenon-128, and then we can date them. Uh, it's a bit like carbon dating, but on different 
timescales and using different elements. Oh, okay. So that's something we can do with the meteorites. Because over a certain amount of time, a certain fraction decays. Exactly, yeah. That. Oh, that's fantastic. And presumably they could come out pretty old. Yes. <laughs> Four and a half billion years, give or take a few, usually. Right. That, that's, actually, that's actually a very good sort of um, check that you are indeed pro- probing the early solar system, isn't it, <laughs> yes. if you get the right sort of age. Yes. That's brilliant. Well, just the last thing then, I, I guess I must ask you, why is xenon your favourite? <laughs> uh, noble gases are particularly useful for the type of work we do for a number of reasons. Firstly, um, they're unreactive, so they're just sitting there in their elemental form. They've not formed compounds with other things. They're everywhere, but they're everywhere in very low concentrations. And they tend to have multiple isotopes, which are affected by different processes. So, as I said, radioactive decay of some other elements can produce xenon and argon and you can get reactions with cosmic rays producing some of the noble gases and the fact that there's only a small amount of them means that these processes of radioactive decay or interactions with cosmic rays or whatever that might only produce a very small amount is a detectable change against a low background so you know let's say we've got a process that's producing just a a couple of thousand atoms against a background of a couple of thousand atoms that's a massive fraction. But if you look at something like oxygen or nitrogen that are in much higher concentrations everywhere, a couple of thousand atoms is nothing against the background of 10 to the whatever atoms that are there to start with. Xenon has got nine isotopes. It's got the most isotopes of all the noble gases. Um, And there are lots of different processes, lots of different things we can learn from it. And once they're there, they tend to stay as... Yeah, yeah. You can sometimes, if there's been a, you know, an impact or another heating event to an asteroid or a meteorite, that that can affect the amount, but it's not going to change the xenon into anything else. Yeah, and maybe then as a as a very last one, what was it that originally motivated you to sort of take your scientific studies to materials outside the Earth, or originally from outside the Earth and elsewhere in the solar system? I just think that it's really interesting. Um, I've always had a, an interest in space. I did My background was in chemistry. I did chemistry at university, my PhD in physical chemistry, um, playing with lasers. And this lets me play with lasers and space rocks. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a lot of fun and it's very interesting. Excellent. That's fantastic. Well, as, as you mentioned before, some of your colleagues have worked on lunar samples and we should definitely have to get some of them to come and uh, give us an interview as well. I'm sure they will. But thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for that, Mark. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. Okay, so for my odd and end, I'm going to be talking about stellar rejuvenation. Studies of white dwarf atmospheres have been of great interest for a few years now. You can use spectroscopic techniques to probe them for cremated remains of planets, which have been cannibalised during the star's transition to a white dwarf. It becomes a red giant, swallows any planets inside of its radius, and then these disappear and become part of the white dwarf's atmosphere. During one of these studies, it was discovered that a certain white dwarf was glowing more than usual in the infrared. And they studied this for a while, and they came to the conclusion that it could either be a companion brown dwarf, which is a star that was too small to ignite, or a rejuvenated planet, which is an old planet which has undergone something that scientists have dubbed a cosmic facelift. So how can you tell the age of a planet? 
Young planets glow with infrared light from formation, and as they age, they cool, and they become dimmer and dimmer, and eventually you can't see them anymore. Any planets around a white dwarf must have been really old, and really far away as well to have survived. So how could they be glowing now? One of the theories is, during the red giant phase, when white dwarfs blast out large amounts of matter into space, uh, and this has the byproduct of creating a beautiful but misleadingly named planetary nebula, because these don't form planets. Any planets that exist and survived this explosion will hoover up some of this matter, and if these planets hoover up enough, they will start glowing again, and they'll undergo this cosmic facelift. They'll begin to glow, we'll see them again, and they'll take on the appearance of planets that are a billion years younger than their actual true age. So it's like a, a super extreme version of a TV show that we have here. Ten years younger. Ten to the nine years younger. Ten to the nine years younger. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see a cosmetic surgeon try and beat that. <laughs> okay, and what do you have for us, Hannah? <laughs> um, so mine is also a stellar remnant. It's um, a neutron star called Circinus X1. And this is a very luminous X-ray source. It is... Um, it has been dubbed the Lord of the Rings, and that is the title of the paper that's been published, the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and it's um, this neutron star has been um, seen with these four concentric rings about it, which are very bright in the X-ray. This is the brightest of this kind that's been seen so far. Um, so this neutron star uh, flared up in the end of 2013 and was observed for 40 to 80 days afterwards with uh, Chandra and the XMM-Newton um, X-ray telescopes, which are in orbit. Um, and so these concentric rings, we think, are caused by um, the, the X-ray photons passing through the interstellar medium and being scattered by different dust clouds along the way. Um, so the, the scattering creates these light echoes around the source. So from this light echo, we can reconstruct the dust distribution of the clouds between us and the neutron star. And because of that, we can work out the distance be between us and the neutron star and the dust clouds along the way. So they've worked out that this um, neutron star is about 30,700 light years away. Wow. And um, they've also um, worked out that because this um, neutron star is creating these big luminous x-ray bursts that it must be accreting a lot of matter to produce these this um, bright x-ray burst. And now for something else that's accreting. There is a black hole that is stretching its arms and yawning. It's waking up. Uh, this has been detected by NASA's SWIFT satellite um, in the form of high-energy x-rays. So the black hole isn't alone. It's part of a binary system. This itself is called V404 Cygni. It's in the constellation Cygnus, and this was first observed on June the 15th. So as I said, this black hole is part of a binary system, uh, and it's considered a low-mass binary. The star, which is the donor star to the black hole, is of one solar mass, and the black hole itself is about 10 solar masses. Uh, the orbit of the two around each other is only six and a half days, so this incredibly close orbit combined with the strong gravity from the black hole create tidal forces from the black hole which strip lots of the gas from this donor star and so what happens is this gas forms an accretion disk around the black hole and eventually the the gas infalls and it heats up to really really high temperatures and produces x-ray emission so this is therefore called an x-ray nova and that's different to a, a supernova 
Yeah, so a nova is when material is on the surface of a black hole or a neutron star or white dwarf and there's a lot of fusion and creates bright uh, emission that way, whereas a supernova is down to the sort of very sort of pre-stages of the core collapse of a white dwarf, this is type 1a supernova, which also has a, a donor. Uh, and as that happens, there starts some carbon fusion and the enormous amount of energy that's released from this creates a massive shockwave and it's a lot, lot brighter than a nova is. Uh, so this X-ray nova has actually been dormant for quite a while and this is why I was saying it's waking up. It's not been observed or seen to do anything since 1989. And the thought is because there are two different states that the um, nova can be in. There can be a cool state where maybe there's not been as much gas inflowing from the star for some reason or another. And as it's cooler, it manages to resist the pull from the black hole. But eventually over time, and as what must have happened on June the 15th, is that there builds up just so much gas that it can't resist it anymore and it just inflows like a huge tsunami, creating this massive, really bright emission. Uh, so one of the things that's quite exciting about this is that it's quite close um, so I said it was 8,000 light years away, it's two and a half kiloparsecs. And to put that in terms of scale, our whole galaxy is 40 kiloparsecs. So it's really quite close. And because of this, um, lots and lots of people are trying to observe it, to sort of measure it across the entire spectrum. So we've got Swift doing gamma rays, Chandra doing X-rays, uh, Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope uh, also observing. The uh, maxi instrument on the ISS, which is a Japanese instrument called the, which stands for the Monitor of All Sky X-ray Image, and then we've also got some stuff on the ground. Uh, Spain is observing in the infrared, and there is a small telescope in Oadby from the University of Leicester, which is observing in microwaves, forty to seventy-five gigahertz, and there's also a radio telescope in Japan. Um, and as I mentioned, the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope, the actual instrument on board that measures the emission is called the Gamma Ray Burst Monitor. And every time it is triggered by some bright emission, it sends an email to everyone that works with that instrument. And now uh, because this X-ray Nova has been quite so bright, it's been absolutely, completely filling up all the inboxes of everyone that works there. So one of the scientists... Uh, from the Max Planck Institute of Extraterrestrial Physics in Germany is actually put on social media Achievement Unlocked, mailbox spammed by a black hole <laughs> So everyone's getting really excited <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, And so yeah, this X-ray peak is expected to last a few days and it will fade over a few weeks and months so we've got just enough time to get lots of science So how do you know that this is a black hole? The patterns that the X-rays are emitted in actually have special signatures as to whether it's a black hole or it's a neutron star. So I don't know them myself, but that's uh, that's how they determine between the two. Okay. Okay, well, let's hope it shines brightly for long enough uh, for us to get all the science that we can out of it. But for someone who's always shining brightly, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for July 2015. Well, the least that can be said is that the nights are getting slightly longer, but partly because of British summertime, one has to wait up quite a long time before it's truly dark. If you do so, there'll be a fairly bright star visible in the southwest. 
It's Arcturus, the brightest star in the constellation of Bootes. Moving up and over to the northwest, you'll see the stars that make up the plough, part of Ursa Major, with two of the bright stars, Merak to the right, Dubhe to the left, pointing towards Polaris, the pole star, near the north celestial pole. Carrying on and going a little bit towards the north, you come to an opal W shape of stars, which is Cassiopeia. If we go back to Arcturus and move over towards the east, you should see three bright stars. They form what is called a summer triangle. They're composed of Vega in Lyra, Deneb in Cygnus, and Altair in Aquila at the bottom. The Milky Way passes through the summer triangle, but below Alberio, which is the head of the swan, there's a region called the Cygnus Rift, a darker region because of dust clouds in the Milky Way. If you start at the lower star, Altair, and move about a third of the way towards Vega, where this Cygnus Rift is, with a pair of binoculars, so it's fairly dark in the background, you should see what's called Brocky's Cluster, or more normally known as the Coat Hanger, a little asterism that looks just like an upside-down coat hanger. It's a very nice thing to spot. Down to the lower left of the Summer Triangle is a little faint constellation, perhaps binoculars will see it best, called Delphinus the Dolphin, with a little sort of group of four stars making up the body and the tail coming down to the lower right. So quite a number of objects to look at. If halfway between Arcturus and Vega, there's a fairly blank part of sky, but there is the constellation of Hercules. It has two of the brightest so-called globular clusters in the northern sky, in particular M13, which is sometimes called the Great Globular Cluster. It's the most impressive in our northern hemisphere. Four stars of Hercules, the four in the centre, make up what is called a keystone. Not quite a square, the two stars nearest the zenith are slightly more separated. If you look at the right-hand side of that, and work your way up about two-thirds towards the top right star, with binoculars you should see a little fuzzy glow. And a telescope will show that as a rather lovely globular cluster, a spherical concentration of perhaps a million stars. I give some advice as to how to find both M13 in Hercules and also a rather lovely double star system in Vega. It's called the double-double, because with binoculars you see two stars just to the left of Vega, but with a telescope... Each of those two stars is itself seen to be a double, hence the word double-double. So if you look on the night sky page, just Google night sky, you'll actually find some instructions how to find both of those. So let's have a look at the planets. Can't say it's the best month for planets. Jupiter followed closely with Venus and the fact there was a very close conjunction on the last day of June. And they stay close pretty much for much of July. They're seen low in the western sky after sunset, so you do need a good low horizon. In fact, on the first of the month, they're just 0.6 degrees apart, and they'll set about 2 hours and 20 minutes after the sun. Jupiter is now shining at about minus 1.8, and has an angular diameter of about 32.4 arc seconds. They drop a bit during the month to minus 1.7 and 31.2 arc seconds. Now, due to the low elevation, the atmosphere will limit our view somewhat, with binoculars or a small telescope, you should be able to spot up to four of the Galilean moons, one or two could be in front or behind, as well as the dark equatorial bands. 
I suspect the great red spot, which actually is rather orange and not quite as big as it has been, will be rather harder to see unless the seeing and the transparency of the atmosphere are good. Well, Saturn is a little bit past its best, but it's still well-placed for observations in the south at nightfall. It's moving slowly in retrograde motion in the eastern part of Libra, but still close to the fan of three stars that makes up the head of Scorpius. It's dimming slightly from plus 0.2 to plus 0.4 magnitudes, and its disk reduces from 18 and a bit to 17 and a bit arc seconds. The ring system, spanning about 40 arc seconds across, still makes a wonderful sight. They are tilted 24 degrees to the line of sight, and that's almost as open as they can be. It's rather sad that Saturn is now in a low part of the ecliptic, and even when it was due south, would only reach an elevation of about 22 degrees. That's not going to get better for quite a number of years to come. Now Mercury, it reached greatest elongation west of the Sun, which means it's actually seen in the pre-dawn sky, on the 24th of June. So in July, the first part is actually sinking back towards the Sun. So it'll be best seen at the very start of the month. It'll have a magnitude of minus 0.2 and a phase of about 52%. Its seven arc-second disk could just be visible in binoculars, low above the east-northeastern horizon as dawn breaks. To be honest, it's not really a good month to observe Mercury, but on the 16th of the month, Mars will be just eight arc-minutes away, so that might be worth looking out for. Well, Mars passed behind the Sun, that's actually called superior conjunction, on June the 14th. So again, in July, will be visible low above the northeastern horizon before dawn breaks. Its magnitude of plus 1.6 increases slightly to plus 1.7 during the month, and the illuminated disk stays at an angular size of about 3.6 arc seconds. You're not going to see any details on this rather lovely, I call it a pinkish red surface. Again, we're going to have to wait quite a while until it becomes a worthwhile object. But there is some good news. Due to the ellipticity of Mars's orbit, the angular size of the salmon pink planet varies by nearly a factor of two when it's closest to the Earth. During its closest approach for nearly 60,000 years in August 2003, Mars reached an angular size of 25.1 arc seconds. But in January 2010 and March 2012, it was only about 14 arc seconds. At its last apparition, in April 2014, this had increased to 15 and a little arc seconds. But when Mars next reaches opposition in May 2016, its angular size will increase to 18.6 arc seconds, making it a far better imaging target. And then in July 2018, it will have an angular size of 24.31 arc seconds, close to the maximum possible. And so do put a note in your presumably computerized diary to have a look at Mars in July 2018. Finally, Venus. It's shining at magnitude minus 4.6, dominating the western sky after sunset for the first week or so of the month. It'll be visible about half an hour after sunset and be about 19 degrees above the western horizon, setting at about 11.35. Its angular size increases from 33 to 51 arc seconds during the month, becoming an increasingly narrow crescent, with its phase decreasing from 34 to 
lying in Leo, it is moving towards and then beyond Regulus, spending the 11th to the 18th within three degrees of the star. On the 18th, Venus and Jupiter are joined by a thin crescent moon, seen about 10 degrees above the western horizon, one hour after sunset. You may well need binoculars to spot Jupiter, the faintest of the trio. On July the 23rd, Venus begins moving westwards across the sky again and returns towards Jupiter, being some six degrees south of the gas giant on the very last day of the month. But what about the highlights of the month? Well, there aren't really an awful lot, to be honest. Uh, Saturn, as I've said, is still worth observing soon after sunset towards the southwest. It's lying in Libra, not far, as I said, from the fan of stars that makes up the head of the scorpion. As Saturn rotates quickly with a day of just ten and a half hours, its equator bulges slightly, so it appears a little squashed. Like Jupiter, it does show belts, but their colours are muted in comparison. The thing that makes Saturn stand out is, of course, its ring system. The two outermost rings, A and B, are separated by a gap called Cassini's division, which can be seen with a telescope of four or more inches aperture, providing the seeing conditions are good. Lying within the B ring, but far less bright and difficult to spot, is the C or crepe ring. Due to the orientation of Saturn's rotation axis of 27 degrees with respect to the plane of the ecliptic, the orientation of the rings changes, as seen by us and twice each orbit they lie edge-on to us and can hardly be seen. This last happened in 2009, and they're now opening out. They'll continue to do so until May 2017, and then gradually narrow again until March 2025, when they'll appear edge-on again. Now, around the summer solstice, so late June, early July, it's well worth, at around midnight, looking north to try and spot what are called noctilucent clouds. They're the highest clouds in the atmosphere, at heights of around 80 kilometres or 50 miles. They're normally too faint to be seen, but they can become visible when illuminated by sunlight from below the northern horizon, whilst the lower parts of the atmosphere are in shadow. So on a clear dark night, as light is draining from the northwestern sky after sunset, take a look towards the north and you might just spot them. As I mentioned earlier, on July the 4th, one hour after sunset, Venus and Jupiter will be just two degrees apart, but Jupiter considerably fainter than Venus, but binoculars should pick it up. Before dawn, if you like getting up pretty early, on July the 12th, you can see a thin, waning crescent moon close to Aldebaran and the Hyades cluster in Taurus, looking towards the eastern horizon. On July the 18th, after sunset, Venus and Jupiter and a waxing crescent moon will be seen close to Regulus in Leo. That's actually a very, very nice grouping and would make a good imaging opportunity, but it's very low towards the horizon. I like looking at the moon, and on July the 9th and 25th, the Terminator is not far from two of the greatest craters on the moon, Tycho and Copernicus. Tycho is towards the bottom of the moon in a densely cratered area called the Southern Lunar Highlands. It's a relatively young crater, about 108 million years old. Higher up towards the north and the west, looking up towards the left, is Copernicus. Copernicus is about 800 million years old 
and lies in the eastern Oceanus Procolarum, beyond the end of the Apennine Mountains. It's 93 kilometres wide, nearly 4 kilometres deep, and is a classic terrace crater, and both can be picked up with binoculars. So there you go, some things to look for. Let's hope we get some clear nights. Thanks for that, Ian. And now for our Antipodean listeners, here's Claire Bretherton with the night sky where you are. Kia ora, and welcome to the July Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. Venus and Jupiter begin the month as a stunning pair in our northwestern evening sky after dark. On the first of the month, they were less than a full moon diameter apart, but will gradually move further apart as Jupiter sinks more quickly into the western twilight. Both planets are well worth a look through a small telescope. You may be able to spot Jupiter's four largest moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto lined up on either side of the planet, and observe their positions changing from night to night. These are known as the Galilean moons because they were first discovered when Galileo turned his telescope to the skies over 400 years ago. This was the first time a celestial body had been observed orbiting something other than the Earth, and it provided a key piece of evidence to suggest that the Earth was not in fact the centre of the universe. Venus appears around the same size as Jupiter in a telescope at the moment, but much brighter. But in fact, it's a much smaller planet, similar in size to the Earth. Venus is currently catching us up on its inside orbit, and will be at its closest in the middle of August, when it will pass in between us and the Sun. This month, you may be able to see Venus as a thin crescent through a telescope, as it too sinks lower in our evening sky. Saturn is high in the northeast and always a wonderful sight through a small telescope, revealing its beautiful rings and largest moon Titan. Saturn remains close to the claws of Scorpius, with Antares a little further to the right. Last month we looked at a couple of beautiful star clusters in this part of the sky, but with the centre of the Milky Way running through Scorpius and Sagittarius, there are many other lovely objects nearby. Lying along the tail of the scorpion is NGC 6231, a bright cluster of stars which looks like a small comet. At magnitude 2.6, this is easily visible to the naked eye. Estimated to be only 3.2 million years old and nearly 6,000 light years away, NGC 6231 covers an area of the sky similar in size to the Pleiades, but its stars are much more luminous. If the cluster was placed at the same distance as the Pleiades, then some of its stars would be amongst the brightest in the nighttime sky. With a good pair of binoculars and from a dark sight, NGC 6231 appears in an area of nebulosity and intermingled with open clusters Trumpler 24 and Colander 316 to form a lovely complex sometimes known as the Scorpius Lizard. A little above the scorpion's tail, NGC 6193 is also visible to the naked eye at magnitude 5.2, and nearby NGC 6167 is worth a look in binoculars or a small telescope. Below Scorpius is an upside-down teapot formed from the brightest stars in the constellation of Sagittarius. To the left of the teapot's spout, and just about visible to the naked eye, is the Lagoon Nebula, or M8. This is a huge cloud of interstellar dust and gas where new stars are being formed. M8 is a great example of an H2 region, where ultraviolet radiation from hot young stars is ionising the leftover hydrogen gas and causing it to glow. These emission nebulae often appear pink in colour photographs. Along with the nearby Trifid nebula M20, 
the Lagoon Nebula is a good target for binoculars or a small telescope. The Trifid Nebula was discovered by Charles Messier in 1764 and is famed for the three-lobed appearance which has earned it its name. It is an interesting object to observe as it combines both an emission and reflection nebula along with an open cluster of stars. There are also a number of globular clusters in this part of the sky. The brightest is M4, and this is also one of the easiest to find, lying just 1.3 degrees west of Antares. Appearing as a small fuzzy ball in binoculars or small telescopes, a slightly larger telescope will begin to pick out individual stars. Also in this region, near the top of the teapot, is M22. This was one of the first globular clusters ever discovered in 1665, and is one of the closest at just 10,600 light-years away. From its bright centre, the Milky Way stretches overhead through Crux, the Southern Cross, and onto Carina, Vila and Popes, which together make up the great ship Argo Navis, famous in Greek mythology as a ship used by Jason and the Argonauts in their quest for the Golden Fleece. The smallest of the 88 official constellations, Crux has become an icon of the southern sky. It has the appearance of a diamond kite shape of four bright stars, along with a fifth fainter star. The Southern Cross appears on many flags of Southern Hemisphere countries. Here in New Zealand we only show four stars on our flag, whilst our neighbours in Australia show five. One anecdote says that in some Aboriginal cultures the fifth star represents a possum climbing a tree. We don't really like possums here in New Zealand, so we've deliberately left it off our flag. To Maori, the Southern Cross is known as Te Punga, the anchor of Tamarotis Waka, which stretches out along the Milky Way. At magnitude 0.9 and 320 light-years away, Alpha Crucis is the brightest star in the Southern Cross, and the twelfth brightest in the sky, appearing as a single star to the unaided eye. Small telescopes, however, reveal it to be a double star with blue-white components of magnitudes 1.4 and 1.9. Beta Crucis is a slightly fainter magnitude 1.3 blue-white star at a distance of 570 light-years. Gamma Crucis or Gaycrux at the top of the cross is almost as bright, and is the nearest red giant to our sun, just 89 light-years away. Its reddish-orange colour is easy to pick out, in contrast to the blue-white of most of the other bright stars in the constellation. Crux is not the only cross in this part of the sky, though, with the Diamond Cross and False Cross a little below. Luckily, there are two bright stars to point you in the right direction. Alpha and Beta Centauri mark the front hooves of Centaurus, representing the half-human, half-horse creature from Greek mythology. Alpha Centauri is the closest nighttime star visible to the naked eye, at 4.3 light-years away, and the third brightest in the night sky, at magnitude minus 0.27. It is, in fact, a binary star system, with a third smaller star nearby, which may or may not be gravitationally bound. This third star is called Proxima Centauri and is actually the closest star to the Sun, but is much too faint to be seen unaided. At around 350 light-years, Beta Centauri is a much more distant triple star system, but with a combined magnitude of 0.6, it appears almost as bright. Using Alpha and Beta Centauri to find the Southern Cross is easy. In fact, it's as easy as A, B, C. Alpha, Beta, Crux. The Southern Cross has long been an important navigational tool for travellers in the Southern Hemisphere, and today we can still use it to find our way around. If you draw a line from Gamma Crucis through the cross and across the sky, you come to Achenar, currently sat on its own above the southern horizon in our evening skies. 
Once you've found these two stars, simply point one hand at each, clap your hands together in the middle, and drop them down to the horizon, and you should find you are pointing towards the south. This is because the middle of this line lies close to the southern celestial pole, the point in the sky directly above the south pole of the Earth, about which all of the southern hemisphere stars appear to turn. So as long as you can see the stars, you can always work out at least which direction you're travelling in, even if you don't know exactly where you are. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. Uh, we've got no emails this week, unfortunately, so do send us some. But we've had an avalanche of posts. Yay! Yes. Yay. Uh, first of all, I've got a lovely postcard from Bill Keck 2. Uh, on the face of it, it shows different observations of Pluto from June the 5th all the way up until June the 18th. And it's really exciting, so because it, we're leading up... It's not very long now, actually. It's a couple of weeks it's that um, New Horizons will actually have its closest approach and we'll actually be able to see a lot more about Pluto. Next maybe week's we'll cast, maybe? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe we'll find out what those bright spots on Pluto were yeah. as well. I don't think... And more about some methane. I think that's been discovered too. Oh. Um, but so anyway, so Bill says, Dear Jodcast, for all of human history, Pluto has had no face. To be continued. Dot, dot, dot. Very mysterious. Mm. No, we're all excited too. No, it's a very nice postcard. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, I've got a postcard here from uh, Bob. Uh, it's got a, a picture of the Palomar Observatory in um, California. And he says, um, enjoy listening to the podcast, walking with my dog, looking at Palomar to the west of the US. We have great dark skies here, despite being close to San Diego. Milky Way is clear, Bob. That's great, Bob. Oh, I'm very jealous. I'd love to yeah. see the Milky Way. Yeah, I'm jealous of this next one. Continuing our sequence of jogcasters on holiday, we've got a postcard from Christina. Um, and she's travelling around Middle Earth at the moment. She's in New Zealand and she's had... Pint of cider at the Green Dragon. She's been looking at Mount Doom, and she says the skies have been gorgeous for stargazing as well, even though it is a little bit cold. So, have fun on your holiday, Christina. Thanks for that postcard. We miss you. Yeah. <laughs> and on Facebook, thanks for all the likes. And on Twitter, we've had a couple of tweets. One of them is from Cucanino, who says, "Really interesting edition." Uh, in brackets, not just because I got a mention. And says, "Thanks, Mark Pava, for fascinating contributions over the years." We've had uh, another tweet from someone with the username You Are Joking, saying uh, Venus and Jupiter after sunset in Biarritz, and they've supplied a beautiful picture of sunset by the sea with um, a picture of um, Jupiter and Venus. They're um, very close to each other at the moment. Uh, did they take that themselves? I assume so. Yes. Awesome. Oh, it's gorgeous. <laughs> it's a beautiful sunset too. It's so yeah. Lovely. Very jealous. Oh, actually, that is a really nice looking photo. Yeah. And I also want to say hello to all our new followers and thank you for all the retweets, favourites and follow Fridays. So yeah, thanks for all of that. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website www.jodcast.net On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. So now I guess all that's left is to thank everyone. So special thanks to Dr. Sarah Crowther for the interview. The editors were Indy Leclerc, Monique Henson, Ben Shaw and Charlie Walker. And the producers were Indy Leclerc and Charlie Walker. So until next time, John! John!